You're listening to Cinema Politica's Documentary Futurism Podcast. I'm your host, James Goddard. This episode focuses on indigeneity. We'll hear from Tulsa-based artist Elisa Harkins, as well as one of the documentary futurism filmmakers, Breton Hannum. I'm Elisa Harkins. Uh, I'm an artist and composer. I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm a Tulsa Artist Fellow. And I am Cherokee and Muscogee Creek. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, uh, I do a lot of music and performance. And so, uh, yeah, one of my performances is I sing in uh, Cherokee, and the melodies of the songs come from ceremonial songs and then they're turned into disco songs and um yeah there's dancing involved um as a as a teenager i studied with Mosulin Larkin who's one of the five moons one of the native american ballerinas who she danced with um Maria Tallchief and then um and then later i danced with uh Alvin Ailey in New York for briefly so the choreography is probably more based off of my experience with Alvin Ailey. I asked Elisa to expand on combining indigenous languages and popular musical forms for a high art context. Yeah, I guess it's like, it's very complicated actually when you start to think about it. I mean, at first it seems very simple because it's like, oh, well, you know, like growing up in the 80s and 90s, like pop seemed like the dominant culture, even in art. So then, so yeah, it was like considered high culture back, you know, in the 80s and 90s. So, and sort of like a, like a, a had a very dominant uh, vocabulary so then it's like to sort of uh, present yourself and uh, be performing and uh, trying to like perform your identity and go back to your own languages and then t- trying to like fuse the two together or I mean it wasn't even um, I guess it wasn't even like I was trying to but then uh, now it feels more like I'm trying to <laughs> and I'm trying to like really think about the specific choices that I'm making. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting that there's such a resurgence in um, teaching the languages and learning the languages. So, and I just found out, uh, like I'm taking this Muscogee Creek language class mm-hmm. and the teacher, he's like, well, if you go to New Zealand and you hang out with the Maori people, you have to have at least two songs. So it's like, uh, in uh, native culture, like songs are kind of like currency. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of travel around different tribes uh, and go to different ceremonies as long as you have two of your own ceremonial songs. So then you trade. It's like a, an exchange. A trade, an exchange situation. Cool. So I, yeah, I'm like, I'm starting to get interested in, um, yeah, these. Uh, the, these ceremonial things and then how to maybe play with them more uh, and bring them into a fine art setting. 
But I mean, that seems so strange to, to even say that, but it's like, I don't know. It's more like me just living my life and then bringing it into the studio. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, did you, you said you're taking a language class right now. Did you grow up speaking uh, Muskegee Cree in, in the home or? Uh, no, I didn't. And then um, uh, I was adopted and I just found my uh, natural mother. Okay. And uh, as far as I can tell, uh, she never spoke uh, Muskogee Creek. And then, um, and uh, yeah, I just did a piece about um, Helen Woodward. Uh, she, she's passed. She passed. She uh, was a Muskogee Creek citizen and she had a allotted land um, in Tulsa that her non-indigenous father sold to the city of Tulsa and it's called Woodward Park and it's actually named after him not her but now we reference her but um, uh, I was talking to her granddaughter on the phone and I was because in the piece I'm singing and Muskogee Creek and I say like I'm Helen and I'm talking about the relationship with her father and um, so I asked the granddaughter I was like did she actually speak the language and she said oh no she spoke a little Cherokee okay mm-hmm. is is that uh, is Cherokee um, a more co- like in the territories that do do the territories of the Muscogee Creek and Cherokee overlap, and thus Cherokee is the dominant indigenous language? Um, well, I think that the reason why Cherokee is the most uh, dominant um, language is because uh, it has its own syllabary. Okay. Uh, it's not really... It's been somewhat preserved uh, and isn't necessarily uh, using like English... Um, you know, Chinese English letters to do the alphabet, you know. So Cherokee is just really well documented and um, because, yeah, Sequoia uh, created the written language, uh, it's just been preserved really well. But but people speak, um, there's Choctaw classes also that I could take and there's, uh, yeah, Muscogee Creek and then I'm taking Cherokee. And uh, so you're uh, you're based in Ohio right now, right? Oklahoma. Oklahoma sorry. That's okay. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I'm a Tulsa artist fellow. Congratulations. Thanks. Uh, and there's a particular history there. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Oklahoma was initially exclusively indigenous the state or um well let's see here i'm trying to remember the original indigenous people but mostly it's um yeah it's tribes that have been relocated to oklahoma Mm -hmm. and then uh there was like a the the sooner land rush so basically, the government opened up the native land to a land rush for non-indigenous people to like come and claim the land, whatever land they possibly could. Um, just really, really incredibly messed up. Yeah. And then they, um, yeah, and then they passed. They 
lands were, like tribal lands, like this is Muscogee Creek land, this is uh, Cherokee land. But then they, they in, under the Dawes Act, they um, started dividing up the land into allotments, individual allotments for individual people, which then made it easier for people to like swindle people out of their land or sell their land or for women to marry non-indigenous men who would then try to take the land away from them. Um, and then I was just reading this book, like The Killers of the Flower Moon, and so the Osage were relocated to Oklahoma, and then their land was like full of oil, and they were millionaires. They had like nine cars, and um, the government stepped in and said that they were too primitive to take care of their own money, and so they were given guardians to like watch over how much money they spend and of course the guardians would steal from them and then um, there were these murders that were taking place so there were like 60 Osage that were murdered and um, it was like the way the FBI was created because no one would no one would testify or no one would say anything against um, like white people and so the FBI stepped in and found out like this one family, they married these Osage, this Osage woman and then they slowly like killed off all of her family and then they were slowly poisoning her to try to, and they would like change the wills and they would wow. um, yeah, do all this stuff to gain ownership of the land. Really evil, really crazy evil stuff, yeah. I guess, yeah, the Helen Woodward piece, like the idea was that the the bodies, Suzanne and I's bodies, so basically it was um, Helen Woodward, she owned a huge plot of land. It, it takes up like a really large chunk of the city. Um, it's really funny, there's like a shopping center like a really expensive shopping center called Utica Square and I was talking to her granddaughter and she said oh yeah the family is buried under Utica Square <laughs> like everyone everyone's like walking around like getting their anthropology clothes and their Starbucks and on top of these graves it's so weird but yeah so uh, so she owned this huge a uh, piece of property which um, included like where the where the Philbrook Museum is and where the um, historical society is and where the Tulsa Garden Center is. So, um, in a way, t in an effort to like kind of uh, honor her and honor this history and um, sort of mark the land with our bodies, um, I had Suzanne Kite from Montreal come and she used a field recorder and she went out onto the land and like literally like recorded the land and then turned that into like a musical soundtrack and then she would like trigger the sounds with her with her body with her accelerometer and then she made like this drone that was based based off of the sounds of the water that was on the that was on the land, and then I sang over the drone in Muscogee Creek. 
Mm-hmm. I do make canoes. And, um, yeah, I, yeah, I was talking about my, yeah, my experience with my canoes and, um, they, uh, I mean, initially, like I was at Skowhegan and there's a giant body of water there and I, um, really just wanted to go explore the water. But then after, immediately after Skowhegan, I came back to Oklahoma to visit my parents and, um was really kind of struck by the amount of bodies of water that are in Oklahoma. And also um, was researching the history of canoes and canoes are um, an indigenous invention. Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about the the history of canoes and um, yeah, there's a song called um, medicine song for rough water so that's what one of the canoes is named and then um another one is named tin killer after uh the tin killer lake in Tahlequah and um yeah it was funny I was like giving a lecture and there's like a Native American sign language piece that I do um and it's telling the story of my friend who drowned and then after I showed that piece, then I went to talk about the canoes and it really like, it really kind of struck me, you know, like talking about um, bodies of water that kill people. So like Ten Killer is called Ten Killer because, um, yeah, it's a, like a fierce body of water. And people think that like the name Ten Killer or man, like Wilma Mankiller comes from, um, like a warrior society, but the Cherokees aren't really a warrior society. So those names actually come from water. So, so yeah, I don't know. So I'm just kind of really thinking regionally about the works, um, kind of, kind of rejecting a sense of um, universality, I guess, in uh, artwork, like the idea that. Um, I don't know. Everyone, everyone looks at a minimalist painting and sees the same thing or something. I don't know. Right, like creating work for the context that it's going, or for the context that it's going to be exhibited or performed in. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of site specificity to my work and a lot of um, histories. A lot of like, I guess. Um, people would call them minor histories because they're not the major histories that are necessarily taught in schools so um, or written about so but maybe I should just say like lesser known histories or yeah totally <laughs> I mean it's uh, so how do you find that that what does that mean when you travel with your work because I know you uh, like we met when you did a performance in Ottawa, and uh, I, I know you've performed in Vancouver. Um, so when you make work for specific contents, context, how do you feel about traveling with it? Well, I do get a little nervous. Um, the performance I just did in Vancouver, I did it here in Tulsa, and it went over really, really well. Um, because the imagery from the animation is like pretty specific to Oklahoma and the, like there are 39 different tribes that live in Oklahoma and um, 
the intertribal imagery is just thick, you know? It's um, people borrow from each other's cultures. Um, so, uh, so the animation is like really intertribal. There's like Kachina dolls, there's um, Navajo weaving, there's um, uh, peyote bird, peyote birds, there's um, uh, the first song is like a Blackfoot um, origin story of the Buffalo dance. Um, so, uh, so I kind of, yeah, I kind of feel a little bit nervous, like taking it out of Oklahoma and going to a place where um, the indigenous identity is maybe not intertribal, you know, it's, mm. uh, maybe a little bit more specific. So, um, yeah, I was really nervous, but it went over. It went over well, and people were dancing, and uh, so that was exciting. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I just wanted to circle back a little bit more to um, language, and like you said, you're taking language classes. Why is how is why is it important to you to preserve languages? I mean, I think it's it seems fairly obvious why it's important. I mean, um, uh, I, they did a study uh, with AI and the English, English language and it, they found that the English language is inherently sexist and racist. Mm -hmm. um, just the way that, uh, just the binaries that are created um, and uh, sort of the elevation of um, adjectives and um, things associated with the color white even, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think that uh, even though it may take twice as long to say something in Cherokee as it would in English, um, it's still these nuances and sort of like a new way of describing things. Yeah, and it's, yeah, that diversity of thought that comes from different languages is, uh, it's, it's hard to even put into words what that, how that works and what that means, I guess. I find, uh, even like I've been trying to teach myself somewhat, uh, my father's language, uh, Bele, and that's like, uh, and even just the way, like I speak both English and French, but the way Indibele is structured is so different than those languages that how people go about saying things, it, yeah, it adds such a, a different tone to how you talk and what you're doing when you're talking and saying things. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I just started taking these uh, Muscogee Creek uh, language lessons, but um, <clears throat> our teacher was saying like in the early part of the day um, how you talk to your elders is one way and then in the evening how you talk to your elders is another way which is really <clears throat> kind of fascinating yeah I guess past present and future is very important but there are some like words that don't uh, engage in time there's some like uh, verbs that don't like truth is past, present, and future, but you can say like, like truth. Like, is that true? You know. 
thank you very much. I think that that is. Uh, do you have any last thoughts you'd like to share? Yes, <laughs> about the future, maybe. About the future. I mean, I I I feel very confident that uh, that these languages will be preserved in the future. Uh, I don't know, even like just going to YouTube, like um, our homework assignment uh, for my Muscogee Creek class is to learn um, is to learn a song, and I'll show you this. There's like we have like a songbook that they gave us, and um, he wants us to learn this song. And then we're gonna, um, so the men line up on one side of the room and the women line up on the other side of the room and they like kind of come together and face each other and they sing it. Um, and he says that the sound like travels upward okay. to the ceiling, which is also like for me, like a sound art nerdy kind of cool idea. Um, but yeah, so I was like, he was, everyone is very shy in the class. Um, and he's like, who will come up and help, help me lead singing? And uh, I was like, oh, I will. And I was like, oh, I bet I can look it up on YouTube. And then sure enough, I um, found some people like doing ceremony and singing it on YouTube. And so I can practice it and then take it into class and teach it to more people on Monday. It's very exciting. And uh, the song, the title of the song that you, you held up and showed me the score to or the lyric sheet uh, is God Our Creator. It uh, is. <laughs> and yeah, my teacher, uh, he's a minister. He's a minister in a Cherokee, Choctaw, Muscogee um, church. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's interesting that... Uh, uh, so they've adopted uh, Christianity into the, the language. Right. I, um, yeah, I kind of uh, wonder about it, you know. Um, yeah, I'm wondering, like, if their idea of God is different or if it is, like, uh, an inherited uh, idea of Christianity um, from the settlers or... Mm -hmm. Or like a... Um, or a more an older idea like mm -hmm. a day like just a deity kind of thing cool well uh thank you very much for talking to me today yeah uh, start off, uh, would you care to introduce yourself? Sure. Talawesi Brett Hanum Leawi Gespukwit Migmagi. I'm Brett Hanum. I'm from um, the Gespukwit district of Mi'kmaq territory in Nova Scotia. And you're making one of the films for documentary futurism. Do you, would you like to tell us a little bit about your film project? Um, sure. I'm just actually pulling up the page here. It's called Asagatikal um, Dapukal Otil, which means uh, the place where two paths or two roads kind of meet. 
Um, the dog, the dog may be making noise. Um, if he gets loud, I'll I'll stop him. Um, but yeah, so my, the product is Asagardikal Dapukal Oldil. Um, the place, the place where two paths meet, two roads meet. Um, and the idea is that it's, it's at 150 years in the future, um, uh, in Mi'kmaq territory. So in this region, in this district, uh, and the, based on what is happening now in the province, there's a great aging population. I think the only demographic of, um, Growing population is is uh, Ulnu people, Mi'kmaq people. Uh, so taking that into consideration, I had imagined this world where uh, 150 years in the future, um, parts of the province have largely been abandoned and uh, by settler descended people mostly, um, and have come back under the stewardship and care of of the Ulnu Ulnu. Um, so the the framework of the of the film is a documentary film crew that has uh, been invited into the community um to to witness what um the 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 people are doing to heal the land which involves uh removing old technology or toxic technology um or um helping people and animals that that maybe are stuck or have have lost lost their way um, and it's ambitiously also supposed to be in uh, in Mi'kmaq language, um, which I've been learning um, a little bit here and there, like um, over the past few months. But I'm by no means fluent at all. Uh, how are there are there resources uh, for learning Mi'kmaq? Yeah, there are there are some resources. Um, the main one, there are some online resources. Uh, they're they're kind of not as they're they're growing. Um, certainly for like younger people in Neskasoni, there's a full immersion um, school. I don't know what grade it goes up to, but I think the idea is eventually it will be you can have children and youth go through from the beginning of their school education to the end and it's all in Mi'kmaq um, by default but there are resources through uh, MK which is Mi'kmaq Kina Madewe I'm probably saying that awfully um, but it's like the educational resource and rights um, body uh, so there are there are some like mentorships and things through them. Cool. And uh, why was it important to you to uh, to ambitiously uh, do the film in Mi'kmaq? <laughs> well, part of part of the notion of creating uh, work of. of documentary futurism is to challenge um, colonial methodologies and kind of ways of thinking. So part of that involves um, return to the land, 
that's in there and then the and then the language as well and the way that it works at least to me because i'm only i'm only one person and i can't speak i don't speak for all Mi'kmaq people of course but um the way i see it is that you know you have a relationship with the land and uh and the people and the language comes from that relationship and it's a very old language um so to even to speak it at all um is is an act of um reclamation i think and and to use it in a project of this something like this uh, is very important because it shows um you know a, a future where there's not only room but there is uh, reclaimed uh, reclaimed um sovereignty and 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 space at the same time uh because the peace and friendship treaties out here i would say that it's not at the exclusion of um settler descended people it's not like they must all be banished away but so much as it's um uh at least founded on the principle or i'm trying to approach it from the principle of of here is uh to uh, to wide seeing so um you know there most of the people will, in the film would be ulnuk uh but n- not everyone uh mm. but the language would all be um the language uh are, is there um uh are there many people in the community is it uh can you uh, is there space to live in Mi'kmaq currently uh are there many people in the community could you go about your day-to-day life uh in a sort of Mi'kmaq envir- linguistic environment oh um um, in different communities, you could, yeah. Uh, I don't think down here, um, near where I live, I live uh, just outside of Ulsidkuk, um, Bear River First Nation. Um, so we do, we have like language, um, language club <laughs> classes, workshops, and we learn, like we're a bunch of different people are learning. Um, and then... Uh, at the other end, uh, Unamagi in in uh, in Cape Breton and uh, say Eskasoni, uh, they have more fluent speakers, um, and that's where the immersion immersion school is. Different communities have different levels of people that can can speak fluently. Um, I don't have the statistics in front of me though. Sure, of course, yeah, yeah. Um. I know uh, when we spoke earlier, uh, first when uh, this this project started, you'd mentioned uh, doing workshops and filmmaking workshops in different communities. Uh, I, I was wondering maybe if you could talk a little bit about that work and the struggles uh, and some of the struggles you faced doing that. Sure, that's an ongoing um, program right now, actually. Um, through the Atlantic Filmmakers Cooperative, it's the languages of Nova Scotia, so it's five different um, language communities, and one of them is uh, Mi'kmaq. Um, I'm also probably butchering that, 
But um, so the Mima language community. So we went. We went into uh, Eskasoni uh, in November of last year, so 2017, to um, have like a weekend, so like a Saturday and a Sunday of uh, so people could come and learn about like get a crash course in filmmaking. Um, and it's a bit of a challenge because it's it's six hours I think from Halifax or seven hours from Halifax, and and from where I am it's even farther probably another two or three hours. Um, and there are, were mostly youth I think that came to it, um, but it can be it can be hard when because communities are remote. Um, to have work, it's nice to have workshops like that, um, and to have, to go into those um, communities, but it's better for to have them involved, like more core involved into things. So when we went there, we had like you know language consultants, and we had um, the fr- were from the community, and and some filmmakers from the community come out as well, um, to kind of like help bolster that presence and and to be there. And of course we. Uh, greatly respect their experience and perspective and, and the help and knowledge that they brought as well. Um, but it, there are, are different, um, I think, groups that go to different communities. There's one in, I think it's in Quebec, uh, Wapakoni. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, they go in. Yeah. They tour. Northern Quebec. Yeah, yeah. The, so they go in. And I think they've been here. They may have been down here actually last year at some point too. Uh, but mm-hmm. that stuff, that's really good when um, there's kind of training. The problem is um, when the workshop is over, then that's it. it it's done, mm. right? It, there needs to be more... Uh, um, of a presence Follow. and oh, yeah, an infrastructure or something. Or, I, I'm not sure what you would call it, but uh, mm-hmm. or what the solution is to that. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Uh, and uh, how did you how did you become a filmmaker? Um, accidentally, <laughs> when I was younger. Um, I watched a lot of TV and movies and I drew a lot of pictures and told a lot of stories and wrote a lot of, as I was doing stuff. Um, and I grew up in, um, pretty much in the woods. (laughs) So there was a lot of imagination, right? And a lot of, um, being around trees. (laughs) Uh, so I'd watch TV or whatever's on satellite or, um, and we used to have like cards in those days. You got to like put these cards in to the satellite. To and anyway, I think my dad had like a system where you had to put in different cards at different times to get like things for free or free channel. I can't remember. Um, or like your cousin might tape something, and you get a tape, and you can. I'm dating myself by saying that, but. Um, <laughs> So I would watch a lot of that stuff and it never really occurred to me to be a filmmaker because in my mind that's what Hollywood did, right? People don't make films here. And then when I was, I think 17 or 16 or 17 or somewhere around that age, my uh, one of my teachers in high school um, showed me a movie that was made in Nova Scotia. And I was like, oh, wow, you can make movies here. 
and I still wasn't quite um, putting things together. Uh, and I went to um, animation school for a year, and like part of that was filmmaking. I was like, okay, well, I kind of like how this works, and I really don't like animation because I like drawing, but I'm <laughs> definitely not patient enough to uh, to draw something over and over and over and over again. Um, and then I went into, and then I went and studied film at uh, at, at NASCAD uh, University uh, film program there. Um, and then from there, I, that's just was the thing that I that I ended up doing, <laughs> I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you find um, what kind of stories do you like telling with your films? Well, a lot of my my films deal with um, identity in in some aspect, be it uh, like a personal identity, a gender identity, a, a cultural identity, um, how you you or a person's relationships relate to themselves and to the world around them, to a community, to the land, to tradition, and and so on. Um, so I, a lot of my earlier things, earlier films were dealing with ideas of gender and sexual identity, um, and, and touching on, you know, on racial identity, on indigenous identity. Um, it can be hard because of the, the resources available and where you are positioned in the world, I guess. Um, but, uh, typically those are the things that I like to focus on and for me the way I grew up I didn't grow up um, knowing all of my family I didn't grow up fully connected to um, my background and and uh, so part of what I do through art is uh, of any kind is um, to explore to strengthen those relationships or to learn new things Um, I don't know if that answers your question at all but no, definitely, definitely. Uh, curious, do you? Uh, uh, what do you think about the future? In general. <laughs> <laughs> How about uh, from a language perspective? What do you see as the do you do you see uh, do you see Mi'kmaq flourishing in the future? Um, I have a hopeful view of that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that are doing a lot of a lot of uh, work to um, reestablish, to get the language going again for a younger generation to to speak fluently, um, like the immer- immer- immersion programs or immersion schools. Um, like that, I think is only uh, it's only a matter of time. Um, with every generation, I think it gets gets stronger. At least um, in in my perspective, and I I think it would be great um, if the province would recognize as well the, uh, uh, um, as an official language, because I don't think it is one of the official languages out here. Um, mm-hmm. And for myself, I would love to be able to speak fluently one day. I I don't know if I have the 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 uh, gumption to pull that off, or the the knowledge or the flexibility of my brain, maybe is 
done, but um, <laughs> but certainly it's something that I every day I practice and I try and work towards, and I think that's essential to communicate a worldview. Um, like language is a is a crucial tool in in uh, decolonization, even to in indigenization or ulnualization, I guess, uh, because it's the core. Um, language of the land it's the relationship with of the of the land and and the people and to me that's like that that's an expression of of that entire worldview is rooted in those words uh, mm-hmm. you know and the more i learn the 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 more it seems ridiculous when people reduce a particular term in the language to an english term and it's like well when you look at what the root of the word is, that's not it's not what it is at all. Like it's that's not the word for coyote or that's not the word for bear. You know, there's like maybe more than one word for bear, depending on what the bear is doing. Um, it's the whole notion and, and view of how it works and the relationship with the world, to see the world as a something that's alive and constantly changing and flu- and in flux. Um, like that's kind of what the language to me expresses or part of what it expresses. So it becomes a crucial tool in, in creating, in creating work and in exploring ideas. Um, and I don't know a lot, (laughs) right? I am just, I'm barely learning things. I'm just beginning to learn things and to understand things and, and try to marshal them into some sort of form that makes sense to communicate um, to other people, so I rely a lot on guidance from more experienced people, other community members, elders, um, uh, and another artist looking to other artists, uh, as well as um, other things within the, this particular genre as well um, that to draw inspiration from. I think it's there's always a question of when you're using colonial tools to decolonize it's implicitly problematic <laughs> because it's a yeah. system that won't doesn't want itself to be dismantled mm-hmm. um, so you can't use the master's tools to yes yeah to under the Audrey Lord uh, so to um to then say, well, to take that into mind and then, and to say, or to look at the language and say, well, that's the place to begin with, right? And from that place, we question um, the colonial histories and thing and and ideas and worldviews that are have been imposed, as well as notions of gender identity and sexual identity, and uh, throughout probably every every section of. Um, the world i guess uh so it's it's a big thing <laughs> i've never put that into words but um it's a it's a big big part of it definitely do you uh, uh maybe going back to the film you're working on i um uh, i still can't pronounce the title <laughs> myself uh um how where how how is that where where are you at with that process and how is that going well now uh, um part of it has changed a little bit so i've started to i've written a script 
like an, which is wrapping my head around it is a little bit of a thing because it's supposed to be a documentary set 150 years in the future and is it a short film that's framed like a like what is it exactly so I just kind of had to decide that what that was on my own I guess and um, figure out like an a script to work off of or at least an outline because uh, I know I have an outline existing but it didn't have enough detail in it because I have to figure out the dialogue and stuff and I need someone to help me make sure that's properly done too but um, so now I have a, a more definite idea of what to do and I know I have a couple of locations in mind to film at uh, but I need to um, go and take some photos um, I don't know if you can hear the dog in the background. It's all right. <laughs> he looks very cute, or uh, they look very cute. Oh, he's cute, but he's a pain. Because um, he probably knows. He knows he's cute, so he can get away with anything. Um, but anyway, yeah, so... Um, that's kind of where I am right now. I have. I was planning to go last week to take some videos of like some there's a bunch of abandoned buildings and old sites like that um to do some location scouting and i know where the locations are but i want pictures of them without snow because i'm mm. not going to be filming in the snow mm-hmm. but um i had added an extra element that um i hadn't i don't think put in my original thing which involves some um visual effects so mm-hmm. um creating um like digital paintings i guess um in so there'd be um like a wider shot say uh and in the background there'd be these large technological behemoth things their use isn't particularly important but those are i don't know 150 years in the future there's that's more the sci-fi element of these uh, factories or um, machines that have been sitting um, and leaching into the earth into the land poison or toxin or whatever it is that needs to be removed so that is that kind of that element as well these um and and talking to uh someone who can do that <laughs> and figuring mm-hmm. out like these are the type of shots that I need to lock off or um if I'm going to have a mo- a tracking shot I need points of reference or and then the biggest thing would be a green screen I don't really want to go there though cuz that's a nightmare for me mm-hmm. it's like outside to set up a giant green screen the cost alone is crazy but then the logistics of lighting it and keeping it dry and the wind not blowing it away um and then the, the compositing after the fact yeah and it's i mean i've done like in i did a feature a couple of years ago and like there were a lot of visual effects in it that were like adding snow or taking out certain aspects or racing like pixel burns and small things to to bigger things like (laughs) there was a lot of digital blood (laughs) that was added um so i'm familiar with what the process is and kind of the scope of it um i think it's it's still within reason of (laughs) for 
um, to achieve, um, and I think it will add a, um, an extra element. Um, so I am kind of in the process of, of like sketching those things out, and then I have to talk to um, my VFX artist to, to decide, like, well, this is the look we'll go with, and I'll ultimately leave that to them. Um, after saying, like, here's kind of what I want this to look like in contrast to, um, like, these alien structures that look like they don't belong um, as part of the land. And I kind of don't want to define what they are supposed to be for because that's a fun thing to imagine. Mm-hmm. Like, is it a mining resource extraction robot thing or what does it do? Well, and sometimes uh, that can be more engaging for the audience if some of that is left ambiguous mm-hmm. because then there's an interpretive element to to watching or the, the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm very excited uh, to see the film and to continue working with you. And thank you very much for talking to me today. Uh, do you have any last thoughts you'd like to share about the future or anything else? Last thoughts about the future? Um, I don't know. I have a hope. I have hope that the future is um, bright. There's a lot of work to be done. I will say I don't remember all of the sources, and I read a lot of things about decolonization, indigenization, and, and reclaiming and renewing things. So I can't give proper credit because I don't remember who said this, but uh, an article or someone had posted something, I read something at one point that was saying we shouldn't even give the distinction of calling things decolonization um, we've existed here, ancestors have existed for, you know, 12,000, 13,000 or more years. This has been 500 years of a disruption. Um, it's, and that's all it is, is a disruption. So now it's about, um, you know, putting things back, back to the way they were, uh, to end the disruption. Um, I don't know if that made sense at all, but, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's something that I I like the idea of that, and um, I think it's important to to even examine the terms decolonization and indigenization, and again because the language we're using is a colonial language, mm-hmm. so it never ends really. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Brett. Oh, you're welcome. Documentary Futurism Project has received funding through the Canada Council for the Arts New Chapter Program. This $35 million investment is supporting the creation and sharing of the arts in communities across Canada.